0: This thing welcome to worldwide bible class pastor wolfmuller here and we are studying the life of jacob together with martin luther we are in genesis 31 verse 43 and we are at the part in genesis this is this um it's pretty amazing actually where where jacob has fled from laban and he's gone down and he's in gilead basically he's way over there And uh, Laban chased him down and found him. And Laban brought all these accusations against Jacob. Hey, why did you, you stole my daughters. You did all this stuff. And Jacob finally lets him have Laban. You look, you you changed my wages 10, 20 years. I've served you 14 years for your daughters, six years for your flock. You've changed my wages 10 times. Unless the God of my father, the fear of Isaac, that's Jesus had been with me. You would have sent me away empty handed. God has seen the affliction and the labor of my hand, and He rebuked you. So, fi- so finally, uh, Jacob, who's been pretty slow to to accuse Laban, I mean, twenty years. Finally, he says, "Look, I, you know, this is this is enough. You you are a, a a wicked man. You have no love, even you have no even normal affection for for me, your son-in-law, or for your own daughters. Here you are chasing me down." You're stealing all my stuff. You'd kill me if you could. So then Laban responds. Laban answered and said to Jacob, these daughters are my daughters. These children are my children. This flock is my flock. All you see is mine. Wow. What can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have born? Now come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So that's what we'll study. That's the words we're after. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear it, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, that by the patience and comfort of your Holy Word, we might embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of eternal life, which you've given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. All right. Hear Luther. Oh, where did he go? Yep, there we are. Uh, so here's Luther's translation. Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, children are my children, the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. What can I do this day? In other words, Laban, what a guy, Laban. Now we'll remember that, um, that, that the normal way of reading this is that, well, Laban might be a crook, but, he's, but Jacob's getting what he deserves. That is not... That is not the way that uh, Luther's teaching us to read this or to understand it. Uh, He wants us to understand Jacob as a godly man, trusting in the promises of God. In fact, oh, Pastor Jernander uh, Jernander sent me a... Pastor Jernander, if you're on here, uh, if you can remind me, he sent me an old Bible history book that... An old Lutheran Bible history book that agrees with what we are talking about, that... That Jacob is a godly man, trusting in the promises. You just hardly ever see that, uh, but um, but it's it's there, and that's that's how Luther's teaching us. So we'll we'll press through and see if if it'll hold up. Luther says, up to this point, Moses has set forth the example and the picture of a saintly man. That's Jacob, uh, this excellent and faithful servant Jacob, showing us what kind of things he did and how much he suffered, how he tried either to win over his adversary to a knowledge of his sin in accordance with uh, love or to lead him to repentance. So Luther's saying that, look, Jacob has been trying to win over, what does it say, to win over Laban. He, he showed him a sin, he, and he does it by law and gospel. He shows him his sins by love, trying to lead him to repentance. In this way, he performed the service of a holy and just man. But what did he achieve? That's what we're going to hear next. So what is Jacob's preaching accomplishing with Laban? And, and the answer is really barely anything. For Moses describes the opposite example of the worst hypocrite, that's Laban. Although he depicted him quite graphically above, namely what kind of man he was toward his son-in-law, daughters, and grandchildren, nevertheless, let us now see how much he has improved in his behavior in life after the admonition and reproof of God and Jacob. You can hear, I hope, a little bit of sarcasm in Luther's voice. First, he says, the daughters are my daughters. The sons are my sons. What can I do to them? Oh, you holy man, St. Laban. <laughs> just this. <to say, laughs> oh, man. Can you? I We've tried. I've mentioned this before, how it would have been just a riot to be in Luther's class in the Wittenberg University, you know? Oh, when he goes on about Laban. Here's not a word of penance or confession. He doesn't say, my dear Jacob, I acknowledge and confess my sin. I treated you too cruelly, not at all like a father. I didn't conduct myself toward you and my daughters as was becoming of a... me. No, nothing, nothing like that. You, nothing of that sort. This word you will never extort from a hypocrite, unless it's on a very rare occasion. For a hypocrite is such a monstrosity that he is simply sinless, if I may say so. And not to be converted now here luther's talking about the the spiritual danger of hypocrisy of thinking that you are righteous and holy by your own works and efforts and the and the result is that when you preach the law to a hypocrite hey uh you you're a sinner they won't have it because they have they have already justified themselves they've already declared themselves to be sinless. Look at Laban, I didn't do anything wrong. What are you talking about? uh, Ah, Laban, all these, these are my daughters. Marriage means nothing to me. These are my flocks. Your work means nothing to me. The promises we made mean nothing to me. To a hypocrite, it seems impossible, and this is really what we'll probably end up meditating on for most of our class today, Luther's discussion of hypocrisy and the connection of hypocrisy to works righteousness to be a hypocrite to the hypocrite it seems impossible that he should sin or go astray even if he's admonished about his sin and error in such a way that he can feel it with his hands in other words look here's your sin you can touch your own sin he says no uh i won't have it i just won't be i will not be a sinner we have this picture set before us also in others in pharaoh in saul Uh, And here we're thinking of Saul, the king, who, uh, remember, he fell on his own sword and died. So this is not the apostle Saul become Paul, but Pharaoh. And so we have the examples of what the New Testament calls hardened heart. In fact, the Old Testament calls this hardened hearts, and that's what we're talking about. Or even if they acknowledge a sin in words, they nevertheless do it rarely or definitely hypocritically and in pretense the sinner look at and in here this is this is luther pressing us to meditate on theological truths the sinner is the only holy man the only righteous man now you see what's happening here so the sinner sees himself always as holy this kind of hypocritical sinner sees himself as holy and totally in no, with no need of repentance it's the same thing that happens when when you know when you well Maybe here's the story. You know, when I, I, sometimes I can tell when I preach a decent sermon, people will say something like, Pastor, I don't know why everyone doesn't believe this good news. And, and I think part of the answer, a huge part of the answer, is that to be a forgiven sinner, you have to first be a sinner. For, for Jesus to be the hero... It means that you're not the hero. That's hard for the flesh, for for all of us. And if that fleshly doctrine takes over, you no, know, I'm the righteous one, then then I, I I I'm absolving myself, I'm justifying myself, et cetera, et cetera. And not only that, but I it it's of such a nature, hypocrisy. Do you see the only here? We can't we can't miss that. What this that, that luther wants to say so the sinner thinks himself as a holy man but he thinks of himself as the only holy man in other words the the nature of hypocrisy and self-justification is that i'm justifying myself but, but i am at the same time accusing everybody else so so that i stand alone as righteous and everyone else is sinful now when God justifies us, when we have the justification of faith, we see clearly our own sin, we rejoice in the grace of God, and we recognize that it's also for everybody else. But there's an isolation in the, in the holiness of the hypocrite. Indeed, unrighteous men do not even sin even on a civil level, especially if they're surrounded by authority or tyranny. Heinz the incendiary oh this is pretty good now maybe before I move on, this is kind of Luther is a little bit like um President Trump in that he had nicknames for all the people he was fighting against <laughs> and they're not that nice. it's pretty funny uh but 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 before we get to that, there's this sense that um, that that a huge part of the gospel is that the Lord is inviting us into the joy of his saving of other people? So, so hypocrisy and self-righteousness isolate us. I'm the only one righteous, everyone else is a sinner. And I and I I'm blind to my own sin. I see it in everybody else's. It's that you remember the business of a of a conscience being like a dirty window, and I see my own reflection on it, et cetera but if it's clean to the pure all things are pure now i can see things how they really are and the and and part of that part of justification is that it it now opens us wide open to the joy of other people's salvation we, we were thinking about this a lot in when we were thinking about the prodigal son a few uh, a few months back but it occurred to me also again with jonah this last week it could be the whole point of jonah is that the lord is teaching jonah how to rejoice in saving other people and especially in the hard thing of god saving your enemies so we think that i we want god for we we want jesus for us and moses for our enemy mercy for us justice for our enemy kindness of god and compassion for us wrath of god for our enemy that's and and that's the, the kind of the move that the hypocrite will make well we are we are when we are rejoicing in the salvation that comes from jesus we're also able to rejoice that that that, that goes to everybody else so there's a there's a way that that justification wants to spread itself out it's an expansion of our joy anyway. It's the angelic joy, right? The angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. The angels don't need to repent. The angels are, are holy. They're already seeing God face to face, but they're rejoicing. So you say, how could the angel's joy be more than it is? How could, how could God's joy, which is infinite in himself, be more than it is? And the answer is when one sinner repents. Uh, Chris mentions, it's almost something of a comfort at times that this is a human tendency, not merely American love about bootstraps and individualism. It seems like every pastor has stories about an encountering, seemingly supernatural refusal to admit the basic Christian truth that all have sinned. You know, it's an interesting thing. So G.K. Chesterton said that uh, all Christian of all the Christian dogmas, the most obvious to reason is the doctrine of original sin. And G.K. Chesterton, when he said that, was wrong. Because because one of the things that was broken in the fall is our capacity to register our own brokenness we can't see we can't see how far we've fallen i've told you that this is the comparison story the guy that falls off the ladder and breaks his neck versus the guy that falls off the ladder and breaks his leg if you break your leg you know it if you break your leg and your neck you don't know it because, and that's how far we've fallen, so that so that, that truth, all have sinned and all deserve God's wrath. It should be obvious, but it's not. Luther says in small called, it's a supernatural truth that has to be taught by the Holy Spirit. So we're, it's a spiritual battle for the law to be received into the heart and the conscience. Son says, some will say I'm good because they kept the law. Right, and we can keep the law outwardly to some degree, but the problem is the demands of the law go all the way down, and we see that in the heart all sorts of wicked things come. This is, uh, I remember, oh um, boy, I remember a, a man in, in Colorado, he's in heaven now, um, and he was he was struggling to come into the Lutheran church, and he said, and he said, don't you, don't we just have to do what's in our heart? And I said, what's in the heart? <laughs> don't you know that out of the heart comes all sorts of sin and anger and lust and greed? And this is how Jesus describes the heart of full of, full of wickedness. And, and, and this is exactly the opposite of what our culture says about how we're supposed, you know, follow your heart. This is the Disney doctrine, follow your heart. Well, it's about, if you had a list of things to follow, the last thing that you would want to follow is your heart. Oy, oy, oy. Okay, we'll keep moving here. Uh, hopefully, that's the, we're going to dig into this a little more. Heinz, the incendiary, Bishop of Mainz, Dr. Jekyll, and Grickle never do wrong. They are the righteous and holy ones among men. This is the Duke of Brandon Braunschweig, Albert, Bishop of Mainz, Jacob Schnick, and John Agricola. Here, Agricola is his name. He calls him Grickle. So, <laughs> Dr. Jekyll. <laughs> Here's Luther goofing around with these guys. And you have to imagine, this is what I, I mean, look, this is part of the problem. Well, it's pro- sometimes I think it's better that we're on Zoom. Because what happens when we're not on Zoom, when we're all in the room, if I say something accidentally funny and you guys laugh, then I start, to, oh, okay, now now I'm on a roll. And you can, you can get that, Luther's going to get on a roll here. Holy man, Saint Laban. They all start to laugh. And then Luther kind of laughs how he made a joke. And now, oh, here, it's always, so then he, here comes the shtick. <laughs> you know, the things that when they're sitting around at night talking about, oh, I got a Agricola published again. And Luther says, oh, Greckle? What did he say this time? He's always Greckling, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they never, they're the righteous and holy ones among men. This is indeed a great temptation. And indignity, which seriously offends and afflicts the flesh. Now, here's the car- here's the warning, right? Is that we can't think, oh, that... Bo-. I mean, if we say, oh, those guys are enemies, or they're the ones that are always righteous, the danger is that then it creeps up on us too. Luther knows it. It afflicts all flesh. These examples are written to console and strengthen us, so that we can know that it cannot be otherwise, that we must live with such hypocrites, with all the greater courage, endure such perversity of carnal judgments. Jacob alone is the sinner. Laban is just. See, that's how that's how Laban is presenting things here. Uh, oh, I see. Um, Jeanette says in Jonah, all the heathens fall over themselves to repent, and the prophet prays in the belly of the whale, how righteous he is, and angry God is saving sinners. Well, it's true. Although that prayer in the in the whale is also shows great signs of, of divine intervention in Jonah's own soul, but. For that, refer to the sermon on Sunday. Uh, but here, so this is how it, Laban is the is the just one, and Jacob is alone is the sinner. So we at Wittenberg are the only sinners. <laughs> Everyone else in the world is righteous, but Wittenberg is the worst. And this is, unfortunately, still kind of the Catholic attitude. I mean, you can be anything but Lutheran. Boy. Even though, I, I think you could find every... I think you could find every Protestant doctrine somewhere in in the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, maybe that's not the case. Uh, they they have a really hard time with original sin. They have a really hard time with any sort of justification. So anyone coming out of the Reformed tradition would also have trouble here. But boy, it's this kind of animosity towards Wittenberg still is there. Even though we give account of our doctrine and prove and defend it to everyone who asks us, and refute and convict our adversaries by their own judgment and conscience, we nevertheless achieve nothing. They are righteous, we are wicked. He who cannot bear and endure these things cannot be a Christian. So this is how it's always going to seem, like this this kind of opposition against the church. They have to be in the right. Christ and Christians are in the wrong. Now, let us look at the words of which Laban will speak and interpret not slanderously, but sincerely, according to the opinion of his own heart. So let's take Laban seriously. Leanne says, my Catholic friend blames Lutherans for all the wrong and loss of faithful Christians. Yeah, I know. They are really still mad about Luther. Uh, let's see. Uh, so according to the things which seem to be spoken proudly and scornfully, for his Laban's statement, the daughters are my daughters, is indeed true but they had already been given to Jacob as wives. The flocks likewise were his reward acquired with much sweat, his Jacob's reward. Therefore, Laban is lying. And I could interpret his words more correctly in this way, but I shall not follow the harder meaning. Let us receive the words as having been uttered with a father's heart. You have all things from me, my son. I am your father. Why should I harm you on my own, uh, harm my own people? I've given you my daughters, sheep, and cattle. You've obtained all things by my favor. May the Lord bless you, so that you may grow and enjoy what is yours in a godly and happy manner. May you be blessed. Okay. So Luther says, let's be, let's try to put the best construction on what, on what Laban is saying here. Okay. And let's say, look, uh I'm, I, I don't, I don't mean you any harm. Why would you think that? Look, your, your wives, that's my daughters. These flocks that's my. I'm not gonna. I didn't come to you to, to destroy you. No. Look at this. Okay, so let's put so putting the best construction on it. And then uh, in this way, a sincere and good father is accustomed to speak to daughters, a son in law, and grandchildren. The hypocrite uses the same words, but they're false and feigned. This we shall demonstrate by two proofs. First, Laban does not acknowledge his guilt and the robberies that Jacob throws into his teeth, for Jacob has accused him of theft and other serious crimes, as well as of cruelty toward himself and his daughters. He acknowledges and confesses none of these things, but is, again, according to his own estimation, righteous. Therefore, although such hypocrites use the words of honest men, and Laban gives a fine imitation of the words of a good and faithful father, nevertheless, they do not speak from the heart. They're not honest. Secondly, this is one of the goals that we, ought to, we should simply be able to speak from the heart. To have a good conscience, so that we can stay what's on our mind, because what's on our mind is not a bad thing, but a good thing. This is a, this is something that we should all be kind of pressing towards, in our in our own sanctification. Secondly, it was becoming of a father to offer a small gift to his daughters and grandchildren, saying, "My daughter Rachel, here you have ten gold pieces for a dress, etc. Here, uh, Reuben, take this along as a remembrance of your grandfather, etc." But he does not confess a sin. Nor does he bestow any gift and testimony of his paternal love and goodwill. So Luther's saying, how do we snuff out if this is truly hypocritical? Well, here's the test. Does he show any remorse for his sin that he committed over the last 20 years? No. Does he give any gesture of goodwill? No. He's still only concerned about himself. And so he's going to suggest, Laban, that they're going to that they should build a uh that they should make a covenant. In other words, what we need here is another contract. <laughs> and this is the way that Laban has for 20 years been trying to, to rob Jacob of, 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 of anything. Okay. He does not confess a sin, nor does he bestow any gift and testimony of his paternal love and goodwill. The purpose of everything is to deceive and cheat an excellent man so that his wives and brethren may change their opinion of Jacob, forget all the wrongs, and praise the kindness of the father-in-law, but the fruits inform against the tree. For before all things, God requires a confession and a restitution of what's been taken away. This is the indication, so repentance and its fruit. This is the, this is the way God deals. This is the way God works. I was thinking about this well a lot because I'm you know I'm working on this the intro to the precious Bible promises and and there's a way that the promises of God can become can become dangerous. This comes up a lot in the prophets. In fact, Luther talks about it a lot too. That. Like the kings in Jerusalem, they have the promise that the Messiah will come from Jerusalem, so they don't take any heed to the warnings that that God is going to destroy Jerusalem. They say, well, how can he destroy? He's, he's In other words, the promise pushes them away from repentance. That's not how the promise is intended. The promise is to push us toward repentance, toward contrition, and toward faith, and toward love. So, so the promises of God are are not pulling us away from faith and love, but pressing us toward faith and love. It, everything that God does is is keeping us in repentance. The, the two parts, remember? Contrition and faith. So first God requires a confession. And then that's the to know that you're a sinner. That's the that's the first part of repentance. And then faith, and then restitution. That's the fruit of repentance of what's been taken away. And then a man should show, show proof of goodwill and unfeigned love. But nothing of this comes to pass. The righteous hypocrite, Laban, perseveres in his righteousness, and yet he produces no sign of righteousness, either affirmatively or negatively. So uh, so Jacob's reproach is vain and useless. This 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 uh, accusation that Jab- that Jacob had made against Laban apparently didn't work. It didn't get anywhere. So Jacob's is vain and useless, the first thing which we, as we stated, we interpret sincerely, omitting the harsher and odious meaning. But he proceeds and now also becomes religious and holy. He, Laban, is not content to defend his own righteousness against unrighteous Jacob, as though he had not sinned against Jacob. Therefore, he will now have to be raised to heaven, to the choir of angels, talking about how holy Laban is and how holy he wants to be understood to be. So he says, come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Laban wants to have a contract, an agreement. You got to think of, here's Jacob. Oh boy, what am I going to do? I, point, I I endure this nonsense for 20 years and and I almost lost everything so many times. And I and and I'm you know barely survived, and here I am about to get away, and he comes down arrayed against me, like an to to destroy me, and God stops him. So now he wants to take me to court and to have another contract. What am I going to do? And you get the sense that Jacob says, "All right, fine. And and let's not just do that. Let's build a pillar here, and let's just make this the boundary." <laughs> and i won't i won't come back if i'm so dangerous i won't come back and steal your stuff and also just to protect you from me jacob's going to say to protect you from my great wickedness how about you don't come on this side <laughs> so he's going to build a so jacob is just fine i'll go along with it to get some relief but it's going to be uh it it's going to be very interesting to see what happens because Jacob is, he's going to put this, he, basically the Lord is going to build a wall from behind to protect him from Laban. Then, then Jacob has to turn and face Esau. That's coming up. Um, I've got a question here that came in the chat. It says, uh, is there objective means to know if we've been truly contrite? Or we simply look to God's word and sacrament as objective salvation, regardless of our level of contrition. Yeah, yeah. There's always a danger when we look on ourselves and say, well, am I sorry enough? Or am I content enough? Or am I joyful? In other words, when when we look into ourselves to find these things, then we will always come up with question marks because the heart is a fickle thing. And we we are never as contrite as we should be and joyful as we should be. So we're always looking to the Lord's word. The Lord's word says, you're a sinner. Do you agree? Yes. The Lord's word says, you're forgiven. Do you agree? Yes. And now we're praying that our hearts would, our feelings would catch up to that confession. That's the idea. Good question. Okay. The hypocrite, Laban, repeats very often, I'm um, back on Luther on verse 44 here. Look, at we covered two verses today. Someone mark it down. Uh, The hypocrite repeats very often emphasizes this clause. Let it be a witness between you and me. As the whole narrative will show. For when they have no fruits, hypocrites are nevertheless accustomed to abound in leaves. (laughs) Like the fig tree that was cursed. With great tediousness, he repeats this again and again. Let God, the mountain, the heap, and the pillar, etc. be a witness between you and me. But there is neither fact nor truth behind it. Those who want to live in the world must accustom themselves to these artifices of the hypocrites. The hypocrites always want to make oaths, swear, etc., etc. And He now begins to overwhelm the saintly men with ill will and suspicion, for he pretends that he fears God and that by his admonition he wants to stir up Jacob to the fear of God as though Jacob were not religious enough. So this covenant that they're going to make is not just a con- a business contract, but it's going to be before the Lord. It's going to be a religious thing as well. In other words, here now Laban says, well, let me help you come along and let me help you strengthen your faith, J- uh, Jacob. He wants to make a treaty in the presence of God, erect a pillar. He's very concerned in making a settlement with him about boundaries, lest Jacob should cross them and inflict some damage on him. But what was the purpose of such solicitude in the case of a man whose faithfulness and diligence he had learned to know excellently and very clearly in the course of 20 years? In other words, nothing in in Laban's life was ever as good as Jacob. The best thing in Laban's life was Jacob, the best person in his life, the best event of his life, the most rewarding. Here's Laban who has a couple of little measly sheep so that his daughters could shepherdess them. And now 20 years later, he has a huge family with huge grandchildren and huge flocks, all thanks to Jacob, which is all thanks to the Lord. And now he says, now let me make a a, a way to go between here and there. Uh, this, is, this is really, uh, what, so Luther says, what's the point of this? What was the need of binding a faithful son-in-law by means of an oath and such religious pomp and a treaty? Previously he had given his daughters his wives and had faith in him in regard to the administration of the family property. Why did he now fear him, fear when he was living in a foreign land? It's nothing else but pretense and pomp. In other words, uh, it's it's all a show. Uh, Jeanette says, if our heart condemns us, we know God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything, 1 John 3.20. Beautiful text. Learn from your heart, but don't trust in it, God's promise. So that our um, if our heart assures us, we have confidence. That's the verse right before, 1 John 3.19. If our heart assures us, we have confidence before God. This has to do with how do we know that we're repentant enough? If our heart assures us, God be praised. If our heart condemns us, then forget the heart. It's 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 a false heart. In other words, we we know we we can even judge our own feelings based on the word of God. Another question just came to me in the chat. There could be people who are highly traumatized. They don't have capacity to show or express contrition, as people who live in a normal emotional state. Do we have compassion on them? Absolutely. And this is part of the point: is that is that. Yeah. Our hearts are every single one of us have hearts that are catching up to what's true. So that, um, so that it's, we, we, we live in an age which has made the heart, the highest authority. Go with your heart, go with your gut, do just do it. This kind of thing that is, That's the precise opposite of the the way the scriptures work. We have uh, the truth from the Lord's word and all of us are trying to catch up to it. All of us are trying to feel how we're supposed to feel. All of us are trying to to, um, want how we're supposed to want and desire how we're supposed to desire. So all of us are in this case where our repentance, if we were to judge our hearts, our repentance is always going to be um, weak and paltry. We There's a, this might be in those Luther quotes that I said, no, it, it was in there, but I didn't put it up there. Oh, maybe it is. I uh, There's a line from Luther that says, we're all half Christian <laughs> because we still have the flesh, which is not. And so we're all in a, in this mix. So, yeah, we got to have contrition. Uh, adding to the topic of contrition, is it correct to say that being contrite and repentant does not equal emotional experience that often accompanies it? Say a parent of a newborn child has no sleep and feels no emotions. They say and tell God they were wrong and repent, they want to do better. Isn't it necessary that they take a nap for they're able? Right. That's right. So, we don't, it's not like someone says, Uh, you know, someone comes to confession and they say, pastor, I'm really sorry about this. And, uh, and I said, well, you don't look it. I want to know, I want to know that you are sorry enough. You know, well, come on, who, who's going to get there? Um, I, I will often, especially on Sunday morning when we all gather and we kneel and we're confessing our sins and, uh, I will confess that I do not feel my own sins like I ought to feel them. That <laughs> my own heart is not tender enough to recognize all the wicked things that I've that I've said and done and thought. That I'm not even yeah I, I, I'm not even aware of it, or if I am aware of it, it doesn't even trouble me that much. Oh well, yeah, everybody does it or whatever so this is so that we, we look we we have to be drawn outside of ourselves it's the mark of enthusiasm that's that theological reality it's the mark of enthusiasm that everything is inside the heart the, the the heart is the realm the theater of of uh of theological activity no it's outside of us it's what the lord says is true and we're trying to catch up to what he said okay who can judge their, oh, even our own heart? Who can know even their own heart? So we have to trust that the Lord knows our heart better than we do. That's the, his business, not our business. And we have to say, okay, my business is not to know my own heart. The, the business of being a Christian is not understanding your own sinful heart. The business of being a Christian is understanding the heart of God, which is Christ crucified. And the the knowledge of his heart, his love toward us, and his compassion and mercy towards us overwhelms whatever kind of sinful nonsense is in our own heart by faith and the forgiveness of sins. Okay, back to Luther here commenting on this. It's nothing else but pretense and empty pomp, this whole business of let's make a, a covenant between the two of us, you and me, Jacob, by which he tries to dishonor a saintly man and render him suspect as though danger were threatening for him. It's like uh, if, if you're a crook and you're dealing with someone who's, who's honest and you, the crook, say, well, look, we need to get this in writing. <laughs> and now you're implying that the man that you're dealing with is not trustworthy. <laughs> oh, Laban. He arrogates innocence, innocency and righteousness to himself and, pretend, uh, and pretends great fear of wickedness in Jacob as though he were thinking of doing him harm. As if it had been a good and honest man, he would rather have said, go your way, dear Jacob. The Lord bless you with yours. I can serve your interests. I shall do with it the greatest readiness. If any danger or difficulties encountered, let me know and you'll see that you're cherished and loved by me in a fatherly manner. I'll never fail you, my dear daughters and grandchildren. But no, no, he promises nothing. Indeed, he oppresses Jacob with the additional burden of ill will inasmuch as he pretends that he's afraid of Jacob. For his aim is that he be respected in his holiness and religion, but that Jacob be rendered suspect to all because of an eagerness to do harm. Wow. Therefore, since he cannot convict him and rebuke him for some sin, he nevertheless tries to brand him with a certain stigma so that he might depart under suspicion of wrongdoing and ungodliness. Well I I didn't say Jacob did wrong what do you mean but the very fact that he wants to build a pillar there and make a contract and like hey we need to build a fence you know it 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 indirectly sullies Jacob's name and by indirection and it makes it makes Laban look like the righteous one Uh, Paul says, does John 30, does verse John three twenty explain why some don't feel their own sin? I don't, it, it, I don't know if it explains why, but it tells us that it's, that that's the case, that some don't feel their own sin. If our heart is condemns us, God is greater than our heart. So that, um, let's see, let me, oh, this, I have this set up funny. This is, uh, I got to turn this off. okay there. Um, so first John 3:19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, whatever we ask we receive from him. So there's two options. Your heart can do one of two things. Our heart can condemn, And our heart can not condemn, can reassure. And so when our heart reassures us and it doesn't condemn, the result is confidence. When our heart does condemn us, it's not that we don't have confidence. No, we say, well, we have confidence in God. My heart is wrong. (laughs) My heart is wrong. Yeah, I don't know, John, to answer your question, if it if this tells us why, but it does tell us of the, of the fact that that can happen. Okay, it also occurs to me, here's Luther continuing on, on Laban. Um, it also occurs to me that Laban was somehow alarmed after the manner of the wicked who have an evil conscience and have a way of becoming terrified and alarmed at the sound of a leaf. As Solomon says, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. That's the last half of that verse. That's a great verse. I love it. Um, this is the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And look at this Leviticus text. This is one of the uh this is this comes up over and over in Luther as a reference to, I wonder if I can pull it up here. Yeah. Uh Leviticus 26 36, as the result of a, of a terrified conscience. As for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts of the lands of the enemies. The sound of a driven leaf will put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. The sword isn't chasing them. They're, they're, just, they're so frightened that everything frightens them. Whoa. And, and the shaking of a leaf, they, they run as if it's an army after them. Uh, I've told you guys the story, I believe of Carrie. <laughs> she's listening. My wonderful wife, Carrie, one time went camping and, and there was, they were camping and a they were in the tent and a bear came to the camp and it was, oh no, she's not only listening, she's watching, she's giving me the eye. I think this is a. I think this is a good story. And the bear was sniffing around the tent. They could hear the bear kind of digging on the table with the food. They could hear the bear actually scraping on the edge of the tent all the way around like this. And they were huddled in the middle like, wow, we're about to be eaten by a bear. And then the bear walked off and they waited and waited and waited until there was nothing. And then they went outside and they saw... Raccoon tracks all over the floor. <laughs> was, uh, that there's this, the, the, this is the, the idea of the evil, I mean, a tent at, in the middle of the woods at night amplifies what a, a raccoon becomes a bear. This is the idea. A fearful conscience makes a leaf into an army. And you know how this is. If, if your conscience is troubling you and you're driving along and you get three red lights in a row, I mean, this is an indication of God's anger. You know, you slip and you twist your ankle, or the weather's bad, or every when you have a bad conscience, it seems like the entire world is against you. And and the result is that and and we talked about this before. This um the this this reflective thing we mentioned the dirty window. An evil conscience becomes terrified and alarmed even when nothing is there, and the result is that you start to see. You start to see your own sins on others so that Luther says, he says, now, that it also occurs to me, he's saying there could be something else going on here. It, it, it could not, it, so here Laban, the hypocrite, could say, let's put up a pillar there to to kind of, to put a bad thing on, on Jacob to make him suspicious to everyone around there. But now Luther says, but there could be something else going on because, you know, an evil conscience is threatened by everything. And because Laban is a true threat to Jacob, now Laban thinks that Jacob is a true threat to him. Everything gets flipped around when you're dealing with a, with an evil conscience. The poets tell... I When I read this last week, I wanted to go track this down, I, and, and I, I probably should, because Luther's going to have these classical references. The poets tell the story of Orestes when he was driven by the Furies. And there's an excellent description in you say this, Juvenal of those who toil under the torment of the conscience. He says, still, why should you think that they have escaped punishment whom their hearts, conscious of a foul deed, keep terror struck? In other words, the conscience is the worst, a, a bad conscience is the worst punishment of all. These are the ones Mm. these are the ones who are alarmed and grow pale at every flash of lightning. This is the punishment which is joined to sin. Now it's, um, you know, Luther speaks from experience here. Remember, he was the one who was, who was almost struck by lightning and vowed to become a monk, was so afraid that God was, was destroying him. Therefore, although Laban knew that no danger threatened him from his son-in-law, whom he tried and found to be good and faithful, it could also have happened that he was still afraid of others, parents, relatives, friends of Jacob. But the chief factor was that by this outward show and hypocrisy, he was eager to extol himself and to oppress Jacob. With such men, therefore, that godly have to do in the world, men who are deceptive materially and spiritually, and that too, under the outward show of holiness, righteousness, godliness, and religion, they triumph when they're able to overwhelm us with an impression of religion Cultivated by them and violated by us. The 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 heretic always seems more holy than the orthodox, etc. Laban alone is therefore righteous and holy in regard to the first and second table. This is the picture and image of the world. So we should understand what's going on uh, when we are dealing with these things. Okay, I look at the clock. This is a good place to stop. So we got through uh, verse forty-three and verse 44. Uh, I'll say a prayer, and then stop the recording, and we can, get jump, we can jump on and, and have some more conversation. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we give you thanks that you preserved Jacob and his family through the trials with Laban, that you brought him back to the promised land, that you, through him, brought about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, and through him, this rescue from sin, death, and the devil. We pray that you would give us wisdom to live in this world, to fight our own flesh that you would maintain us in repentance and the confidence that we belong to you by your word and spirit. For we ask all these things through Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Let's see, before we stop the recording, this is for if you're listening to the recording, know that this is available also by podcast and on YouTube, so you can get it there. Take the advantage of joining us live, though, because this is where the fun starts in just a few minutes. So uh, nine o'clock Texas time on Wednesday mornings. Thanks. All right.